0: This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology
1: change initiative,
0: this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello,
2: welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 32. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Uh, Kyler, thanks for joining us again today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Exciting show for you today, but before we jump into the the agenda and the the plan for today, uh, just a real quick reminder that we have new episodes every Wednesday of this podcast, new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the usual podcast platforms like Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, et cetera. So be sure to check it out, be sure to share this podcast with your colleagues and give us a review, too, if you don't mind. We'd love to hear your feedback and comments on uh, the reviews of whatever platform you're watching or listening to this on. So uh, exciting show for you today. We're going to start off with some uh, news and headlines in the digital transformation and change world. That'll be where we we start things off today. And then later in the show, we have an exciting guest, uh, Chad Baker from a company called LAE Software is going to be on the show And we're going to take a bit of a different angle in this discussion or in this episode later on. We're going to talk more about certainly digital transformation, but more from the context of uh, Office 365 transformation. So if you've listened to the show in the past, we talk a lot about general enterprise technologies and the business changes and the organizational changes that go along with that. But we haven't spent a lot of time talking about sort of those those last mile sorts of technologies, those front-facing, employee-facing technologies that just about every employee in, in a lot of organizations use, at least for those that are using uh, Microsoft Office and the Microsoft suite of products. And actually a lot of what we'll talk about is relevant even if you're not using uh, Microsoft productivity tools for your uh, email and general productivity. So we'll have Chad on later today and uh, we'll certainly jump into some uh, postmortem and uh, debrief and dive into some of those topics in further detail after the interview with Chad. But before we bring Chad on the show, let's run through some headlines, uh, Kyler. What do you what do you have for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So as always, we're going to talk about some hot topics in the ERP or digital transformation industry, and we always try and weave in some of the content that we've spoken about on this show or produced in our other avenues of marketing. So I wanted to start with um, some VC funding as we do a lot in private equity here at Third Stage and cybersecurity. So kind of merging two of the topics that we, we really focus on on the show. So recently, um, cybersecurity VC funding has has hit a record of $11.5 billion in 2021. Um, and knowing that that's been kind of a hot topic, not only in the tech industry news, but also in just mainstream media as well. So something that, um, some of the articles I was reading that referenced, you know, ransomware and solar winds and that type of, um, different high profile attacks explained kind of that the pandemic has completely upended the threat of the cybersecurity landscape. So I, I thought I might just kind of ask you, why would the pandemic um be kind of an, an open door to cybersecurity and i think this ties nicely back to what chad will talk about later today um with that that um movement from remote work uh from actual you know in building type of on premise work so i wondered if if you could kind of take us through why that might be
2: yeah so that's a, that's a great, great question and, and there's a lot of uh there's a couple different reasons why cybersecurity is such a high risk now, and more so than it was even just a couple years ago. First and foremost, and probably most importantly, is that uh, organizations now have the remote workforce, as you mentioned, where people are now accessing systems and data remotely. So rather than being within their four walls of their corporate IT realm, where corporate IT has all the security protocols and it's sort of locked down from outside uh, interference or outside um integration in a lot of ways, now all of a sudden you have a dispersed workforce where at least a subset of employees are now working remotely for a lot of organizations. And there's still um, a lot of organizations that have yet to return back to the office, and some may never fully return back to the office. So now you have all these distributed employees that are accessing systems. And it's not just the fact that they're not in physically in the office. It's now that you have them on the outside accessing the systems coming in, but now you're subject to the risks of all each individual person's home IT security. So, you know, for example, if you've got a Wi-Fi hotspot set up that anyone else could easily hack into, suddenly you've opened up the whole corporate environment to potential threat and potential outside, um, you know, nefarious activity from uh, outside hackers. So that's probably the biggest reason is now you've got this distributed workforce and now you're opening up all these different entry points that could be uh, interfering with, with the security of the, uh, of the organizations,
3: right. And so, in knowing that that trend may or may not kind of evolve back into in-person work, it seems as though many companies, um, especially bigger tech companies, are moving their workforce into twenty-two into twenty twenty-two. Excuse me, to come back into the office. So I'm wondering, um, it says a lot of times in my research that these VC companies are most interested in um, cybersecurity when it comes to cloud systems or multi-cloud systems. And I wondered if, if in your opinion, that might be a way to mitigate risks in keeping a remote workforce.
2: Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, it, I think overall the net effect is what you say, which is, uh, you know, the cloud, the cloud will enable some of this improved Um, security um, simply because it, you know, partly because it enables, I mean, it's going to enable people to access the systems from wherever they are and ideally do it in a secure way. You still have the risk though of if I'm accessing it from a public Wi-Fi hotspot at the airport or whatever, uh, where there's not very tight security and other people are on that same uh, network or whatever, that you're sort of exposing um, your systems to that risk because I'm accessing it from a, from an open public place. But, um, having said that, now that you have a sort of a centralized cloud system where you've got a big vendor like, a, say, a Microsoft or an Azure or SAP, Oracle, whoever the vendor is that's hosting and, and providing the cloud solution, um, they specialize in security, cybersecurity protocols. They have a lot more to lose if there's a breach or if there's a problem or if they don't have sort of leading class uh, cybersecurity protocols. So that's the good news. The bad news is now you know, when you've got all these different big companies that are hosting their data and their solutions in the cloud, now suddenly these big cloud hosting providers have a bigger bullseye on them. Because if I could hack into that, I can I can access a lot of different, potentially a lot of different uh, companies' data. So I think the the risk is maybe a little higher just in that there might be more attempts or there's more to gain if you're a cybersecurity or, or a cyber hacker. Uh, but you have to assume that, you know, with the R&D money being spent or or the security money being spent on these solutions. That's going to dwarf any sort of cybersecurity protocols that a individual IT shop could, could provide for, for a similar function.
3: Right. And so do you think that disproportionately affects those tier two or those small mid-market systems that might not have um, the investment in the cloud or the investment in those cybersecurity? Do you think, or have you seen in talking to clients that that's kind of been a consideration in choosing a system.
2: Yeah, it it is. And it could be, I think, certainly from a perception perspective, it is, you know, talking to clients, there's a perception or, or less confidence in the ability to provide tight security controls for a tier two or tier three software provider. Um, whether or not that's real, I don't know. I mean, i don't have any data that would suggest one way or the other that you're better off or more secure going with a big provider versus a small one. But again, you, you sort of point to the metrics you do have, which is, and I think we've talked about it on this show before, and I don't remember the exact number, but I know, that, for example, Microsoft has, I forgot how many hundreds, but I think it's several hundred people that all they do is focus on security of the cloud solution, so... You look at something that metric that's pretty telling that tells you there's a lot of people that are 24 7 just focused on making sure that you know they address any breaches or security loopholes or whatever the case may be whereas a smaller vendor probably doesn't have those resources and might be subject to more risk
3: so when it comes to the pe clients that you've worked with specifically with mergers and acquisitions I know some of the research that I did showcased that that was a huge trend of acquiring smaller cybersecurity companies and, and the kind of the top cybersecurity giants acquiring them. Is that something that you've seen either in the industry or with all the private equity clients you work with?
2: Yeah, I think given the, the growth of the cybersecurity space and the fact that so many organizations, as, as we've talked about here today and in other podcast episodes as well, are moving towards you know, the need for outsourced cybersecurity solutions. I think that growth and all the money being thrown at cybersecurity is really fueling some of that merger and acquisition activity. Um, And then you add to the fact that in general, merger and acquisition activity across the board, you know, globally, economically, is, is pretty hot right now. There's a lot of merger and acquisition activity happening in the world right now. So you combine those two things and um, that suggests that, yeah, it's it's probably not going to stop anytime soon when you when you add those two factors into consideration.
3: Right, right. Definitely something what we'll keep tabs on um, and just talking about other industry trends. I wanted to switch gears a little bit because we do a lot with manufacturing and different systems when it comes to that. Um, some of the the key things that I've been seeing in my newsfeed is kind of is ERP right for manufacturing Or are more um, other targeted systems, such as like an APS, an advanced planning and scheduling system, something that we should consider? And I know a lot of times we've talked about on this podcast, it's so important for um, companies to monitor their unique needs or requirements. So I wanted to ask you kind of about the advanced planning and scheduling system, APS systems, when it comes to manufacturing or how you might Kind of navigate that. So I wondered if you you would mind defining it for us because I've I've never heard of it in in our um, dialogue before.
2: Yeah. So advanced planning uh, is sort of like uh, it's it's a bit like MRP uh materials resource planning. Um, it's it's just a more modern version, I would say, of of MRP. And and just to back up and explain what MRP and planning is uh, in general. You know, when when a manufacturer manufactures an end product, um, they don't, it's not as simple as let's just go pull together a bunch of parts and make a finished product. They have to plan for when does that finished product need to be done? What's the lead time for when we need to buy either raw materials and or sub-assemblies? Sub-assemblies being, you know, semi-finished sub-parts that then get put together into a a final product. So depending on the kind of manufacturer you are, you might have raw materials, you might have sub-assemblies, You might have both, but you definitely have finished product. And so advanced planning and scheduling is really looking at not just the scheduling of the manufacturing. So when are we going to run the shop floor? When are we going to run a job to produce, you know, a thousand iPhones or whatever it is that we're producing? And it, but it's also going back and working backwards to say, in order to have a thousand iPhones ready for Kyler by, you know, September 30th or whatever the date is, we need to go buy x number of parts and materials so that we have it in stock and so we're ready to start building on this date so it can be completed by this date so that's sort of the you know a simplified definition of what advanced planning is and, and the other component of that is not just the inward focus manufacturing the operational side of manufacturing it's also looking at projected demand so in other words if uh, if you call me and say i don't need those phones september 30th i need them next week um, I should you know ideally in a perfect world, have anticipated that there's some sort of demand that would come. it may, I may not have known as you asking for those thousand phones, but I know that somewhere out there there's probably going to be you know a need for a thousand phones plus whatever you know orders might come through. So it's also looking at what anticipated uh, demand is when that demand we think will happen, and then working backwards from there um, through the whole uh, supply chain to figure out when do we need the raw materials. How are we going to get it to where we need it? And then ultimately, how are we going to schedule and produce it and um, even get getting the labor, you know, which is a big problem for a lot of organizations right now, just finding enough labor to, to produce products. So really it's all that stuff. And so, you know, to your point about ERP versus advanced planning, ERP does some of that advanced planning, but there are systems out there that specialize in advanced planning that can go deeper and provide a lot more robust and more flexible and deeper functionality. All right. Thanks, Kyler. This is good stuff. We're going to take a quick break. And I know you've got some more headlines and more news to share with us. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
1: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
2: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name's Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Tatum, and we're running through some of the recent headlines and stories and news in the digital transformation space. So let's pick up where we left off before the break.
3: Yeah, it seemed from what I was learning about the relationship to the two, that there is kind of gaps in an ERP system sometimes and companies are still relying on that dreaded spreadsheet, right, to, um, to keep their production entities flowing um, and their supply chain going. Is that something you've seen, I'm curious, with manufacturing clients specifically, that they kind of need an additional module or system or support system when they have an ERP suite?
2: Yes, it is pretty common. I mean, it, it, it obviously depends on how how complex you are as an organization and the level of functional fit with systems that are out there. So if, you know, for some organizations that are more vanilla, you know, maybe they're producing sort of high volume um, Make to stock types of products where they just need to produce a really high volume as fast as they can. And they're going to stock those in a warehouse and then they'll just sell the stuff whenever the orders come in. Um, you know, that sort of fits pretty well in, into an ERP system or ERP. You know, a lot of ERP systems can handle that. Um, and first and foremost, just to back up, you want to look at it. If, if you are a manufacturer, you want to be looking at the right ERP systems that fit manufacturing specifically. So you've got, you know, SAP does certainly. Uh, Oracle uh, does um, Epicor, Infor. Those are just a few examples. But even then, even when you find a manufacturing ERP system, which by the way, we have a top ten ranking of the top manufacturing systems that are out on our website, and you can also find it on on my YouTube channel. Um, but even if you find the right ERP system, manufacturing ERP system for your organization. It may be that there's still deficiencies that you need to shore up, and if you're a complex manufacturer and you make a lot of engineer-to-order products, you've got CAD drawings. Um, you need a, a price and a product configurator for your salespeople, so they're out, so they're out in the field selling products that can actually be produced that you know technically and functionally can be produced the way they're selling them. So highly customizable type products. Those are types of situations where you're probably going to stress the limits of a of a traditional ERP system, and you might need a more specific uh, APS uh, type of functionality, or you know, other other capabilities as well. Same is true if you're a a uh, if you have a really dispersed global supply chain. A lot of times, a, a basic vanilla ERP system isn't going to handle that as well as a, a focused APS or even a supply chain management uh, type of technology.
3: Yeah, definitely, and that kind of segues nicely into um, some other industry trends I've been seeing. Specifically in the SMB world, so maybe if you don't have a huge global footprint when it comes to your supply chain or your overall company in general, um, I came across an article that I felt like you would really like because the title is, Who Said ERP is Boring? So, (laughs) And it talked about um, a, a lot of the opportunities that an ERP system can bring to a small business. So I know for our SMBs, we have a specific team here at Third Stage that really manages that because it really is a whole different avenue to integrating an ERP. Uh, there's more budget constraints. There's, you know, a huge change management aspect. So I wondered if you could give us kind of just an overview for our small business clients that might have a warehouse management system or something that uh, deals with manufacturing that are considering going to an ERP session. Um, system. What what can you tell us kind of about those considerations for a small to medium sized business?
2: Yeah, so I mean there's a few. And it's it and first of all I'd say that uh I don't think I've ever said that ERP is boring. I don't see how it could be, but um I can see how it's overwhelming or <laughs> stressful, but not not boring for sure.
3: Yeah, right.
2: Um but you know when you're a small business though and you're looking at ERP systems and the considerations that go along with that to your to your point, uh there's a few things. One is the fact that you're Presumably, growing. I mean, most of the time, when organizations say we've got you know a warehouse management system or an accounting system or whatever, we've got these technologies in place. Now we want to look at an ERP system. Chances are they've probably grown, they've changed, they've become um, disparate in the operations and the systems and then in the data and everything. So they're looking for a way to kind of bring it all together. And it's totally understandable. It's a normal part of the cycle. So the thing to recognize there is that first of all, what worked you know, yesterday or a couple of years ago, isn't necessarily going to work for you now and going forward. So you really have to kind of shift your mind from where you are today and where you think you're headed. Um, that's the first thing. We see a lot of smaller organizations that sort of get stuck in what they did in the past, and then they go out and buy some more expensive ERP technology and then end up with the same capabilities, just with a different system. So you really want to look, you know, have that forward looking um, approach to define your requirements and certainly finding the right system that, that best fits that the other thing to to know that which is probably even more important or even a, a bigger pitfall for a lot of small and mid-sized companies is that when you move from you know these siloed systems that maybe you've sort of put in place just as you've grown you've organically just put in technologies as you need them and now you think about how do we pull this all together let's go with an ERP system it sounds good in theory there's a lot of upside to that but there is a dark side and there's a lot of risk too so you have to look at things like what we were just talking about which is yeah, you can find a single ERP system out there, but you might actually end up watering down certain parts of your business and capabilities within parts of your business. So you mentioned warehouse management. Um, if I go, if I, if I'm used to a a very focused warehouse management technology, and then I go out there and look for ERP systems, there's a fair to high likelihood that the ERP system is going to be able to do a lot of what I need, maybe even most of it. But there's going to be some stuff that that warehouse management specific solution is going to do better than an ERP system. So you just have to be aware of the trade-off. You know, you're gaining integrated data, you're gaining a more scalable system, but you might be losing certain functionality and capabilities, and you might end up having to plug some of those gaps with you know third-party capabilities. So it's just a, a a reminder that there's no silver bullet. There's a trade-off. You're hopefully you're gaining more than you're losing, but you might be losing a little bit by by moving to a to a single ERP system. And then I guess the final thing would be, we find that. With small and mid-sized organizations, there's a bit of sticker shock. You know, when you go out and buy a big ERP system, especially in the cloud, that total cost of ownership sometimes is higher than the technology you're used to using in the past. So you just have to be mindful of that and go in with eyes wide open.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I know we've done a lot of recent content on the importance of having a change management strategy up front because of things like an ERP system can really, really benefit your accounting department, but it may throw off your sales field, you know, and so there there's an, it's important to go through that readiness assessment and that change impact um, assessment to understand kind of what that looks like. And recently, they did a study in Harvard Business Review about the effects of an ERP um, and change management system. So I, I wanted to read you kind of a scenario from there and kind of get your feedback on that. Um, in talking about change management. I also think it fits really well within Chad talking about um, later on our episode about what that looks like in integrating that for Microsoft Office 360 specifically. So there was a a part in the study um, that talked about the journey for two different departments um, and using an ERP or a digital transformation. Um, So they gave an example of one groups of clerks Use the new SAP-based loan management system to enter new contracts. For them, learning how to do their work with the new system was very easy. In start contracts, clerks who needed to make edits to the loans in stock had a much harder time learning to work with it. The clerks in the former group achieved effective use within six to eight weeks, but those in the latter group needed over six months to do their work effectively again. And I wondered if you could kind of give us is that is that something that typically happens or is there a way to get in front of that when it comes to that overall business disruption in a digital transformation
2: yeah that's a great case study or a good specific example of of something that's very common to answer your question that that does happen quite a bit where uh, different parts of the organization are going to have different um user adoption rates and ease of adoption and, and ultimately business value realized and achieved i think the big thing though is as you were reading that um, about the, the people that are making edits and struggling to make the edits when, when compared to the people that were creating the, the loans, um, is that if you had done an org, if you do an organizational assessment and you understand clearly how people's jobs are going to be impacted by the new business processes, that should be a good indicator of there should have been an indicator early on that there's going to be a problem there and in, in really getting ahead of that. So, in other words, and I don't know this for a fact, but maybe. It just wasn't that big of an adjustment for the people processing the loans, maybe or creating the loans. Maybe the those people on the front side, maybe the interface looked similar, or maybe the processes really didn't change as much. but when it went, when it came time to edit and maintain that data, that might have been just more of a massive shift for those people for whatever reason. could have been the user interface, could have been the functionality, it could have been weaknesses in the technology. who knows? could have been the skill set of the people doing the work. But whatever the case may be, a, a good organizational assessment up front should have identified that. And then what you would do is you would do that organizational assessment before you ever start the implementation or certainly in the very early stages of an implementation so that you have time to get ahead of that. And you start to, you know, that you're gonna need to work with those people that are maintaining the data. It's gonna be a harder change for them. So we're gonna start with them sooner and, and really work them through the process. So um, easier said than done, obviously not, you're not gonna catch it every time, but but for a major one like that, which it sounds like that was, that's something you should be able to catch early, early on in an organizational assessment.
3: Yeah, that, that study, um, which is, is titled how to speed up your digital transformation from the Harvard business review. And I, I know you you had recently filmed a similar video, um, talked about the importance of heat maps in understanding kind of the in use complexities that, that change will cause, um, is that a tool that you, you at third stage and team have kind of utilized yeah. Um, to to know where that disruption might take place.
2: Yeah, it, it, those heat maps are super useful to look at, um, especially for for larger and more global, complex companies. If you look at the um, like different locations, different departments within the locations, and even different individuals or work groups within the departments within the different locations, you you break it all the way down and you start to see you know where those red areas are. You know, there's going to be a lot of red there where it's just a lot of impact. Uh, maybe the the maturity or sophistication of the group isn't very high so you know it's going to be a major change or maybe the process changes are just going to be more extreme for certain areas and you're probably not going to have a ton of green unless you know there's parts of the organization that are already using that technology or for whatever reason it just isn't as big of a jump you'll probably have a ton of yellow too so that that sort of heat map is a good way to really prioritize and go after the the red areas in particular ideally the yellow areas too because if you think about it, it's the red and the yellow areas on that heat map that you can start to visualize and see that if we don't address that stuff, that's going to slow down our project and it's going to force us to cause or force us to spend more time and money on the implementation. And to your point about speeding up the project, it's, it's going to make it slow down, actually, if we, don't, if we don't address those. So that's sort of a prerequisite to speeding it up is really understanding the landscape, not just technologically, but also operationally and even more importantly, uh, organizationally, too.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's. I think that kind of brings it all together and understanding what that that looks like. So our are, are tools like the heat maps, are those part of the readiness assessment and part of the change management team, kind of what they manage on that side?
2: Yeah. So during for our team, at least in most cases, not always, but in most cases will during the software evaluation phase when we're helping define you know what technology or technologies are going to be deployed and what is the overall digital strategy and roadmap we'll typically do um maybe a, a bit of a higher level organizational assessment because we don't quite yet know all the details necessarily of what you know uh, of how the software is going to be designed or configured but then when you get into implementation then you you, you have to go a, a layer deeper early in the implementation or as, as quickly as possible once you know what all the technologies are going to be um, to start to assess um, the maturity the the capabilities and maturity of the organization, as well as what the impact's going to be. So to answer your question, yes, that's something we typically do early in the implementation, and we actually start it during the digital strategy and roadmap and selection phase as well.
3: Yeah, definitely, and um, that brings me to kind of to our recent article too in Forbes um, that we had I had read. Um, it's kind of modeled off of a book called State B. Have you ever read that, Eric?
2: No. No, I've never heard of no, it.
3: Either. It's a, a change management book um, that kind of okay. talks about that. But I wanted to see if I could kind of quiz you because the way that Forbes did it is they put it into three phases for change management. And I wondered if you were gonna put it into three three cha- or three phases, excuse me, what you would call those phases. And we'll see kind of how Forbes and you align. So no pressure, but lots of pressure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs)
2: So three phases of change management in general? Yes. So I'd actually break it up into three phases this way. I'd say the first phase would be that, that organizational assessment and planning phase. That that would be sort of one bucket. Uh, Second bucket I would, which is a really big one, I would just say is sort of the execution of the, of the change management, everything that happens throughout to actually move the needle on the change management while you're deploying new technologies and new process changes. And then the third one I would say is more the benefits realization and post-implementation optimization from an organizational perspective where you've already gone live with new technologies, hopefully you've rolled out some process improvements, but now you're really tweaking and modifying and improving and making sure that the people are on the same page and that you're retraining and refreshing people, modifying, optimizing, all that stuff uh, post-implementation. That third one, by the way, is one that I'd say most organizations overlook, forget about, don't care about whatever, but it's probably the highest value out of, out of all three of them. But those are the, that's the way I'd, i break it up. So how did I do? Did I, uh, did I pass? Yeah. Did I fail? Am I fired? What's, what's you
3: read the, the like? article, didn't you?
2: No, I did not actually. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you pretty much nailed it. So the way that they had split it up here and we, we might have to do, like we've talked about a, a ground control book club and and read state B, um, is, Action. So in the planning purposes and taking action to realize how your strategy will change, how roles and responsibilities will change. And then the second one was movement. So, again, applying those different changes, whether it's via training or communications or um, overall transparency in changes of job roles or titles. And then the last one, which they also mentioned was extremely important to not overlook, is called momentum. So taking what the change has um, caused or benefited, hopefully, your organization and continuing to move through that momentum and optimization. So gold star for you. Very good job. Well, they they had cooler names for sure. They they had better
2: buzzwords (laughs) and cool names for them.
3: I'll have to work on that part of it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll take it. We'll take it. And I I think that the change management pieces, the reason I wanted to end with that today is because I, I really do feel like the conversation with Chad that you will have later in the episode really focuses a lot on how they adjust to change management when it comes to those specific systems, specifically those systems that everyone uses on a daily basis, like Microsoft Office 360. They use it to check their email. They use it for storage all those different types of things. I know it for me when I was, you know, listening to it, um, I it really kind of pinged some old triggers for me of corporate life of, you know, being involved in those types of um, efficiency tactics. So I think that's a, you know, a kind of a good segue to head over to, to Chad.
2: Yeah, yeah, agreed. And especially, you know, change management becomes that much more important when you're dealing with a technology like Office 365, which is such a such a fundamental part of how a lot of organizations work when you deal with productivity tools and basically what people are using on their laptops or their terminals uh, on the, on the shop floor or whatever the case may be. Um, So that sort of uh, employee facing um, side of things. I know a lot of our topics in the past have focused on, you know, back end, back office, uh, ERP and CRM stuff like that. So really going to kind of uh, get to get to the fundamentals here, but you're right. Change management becomes important even there because you're affecting so many people in such a basic, fundamental part of their jobs day to day. So uh, thanks for that uh, update. As as always, I I enjoy these, uh, you just keeping up to date on where where the trends are headed and what you're seeing in the news. Um, That's always interesting stuff. And uh, we're excited to have our next guest, which we'll bring on after a break. We're gonna uh, talk about Office 365 migrations, um, change in general with, with productivity tools and whatnot. So we'll be right back. We're gonna
4: take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control.
2: My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And you can find us every Wednesday, new episodes on YouTube and all the typical audio podcast platforms. Uh, Be sure to also check us out on social media. Uh, If you're on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, any of those, be sure to follow Third Stage and follow me as well. Uh, We put out daily updates and tons of content, so be sure to follow us, subscribe to us there. So I'm excited for our next guest. We're going to shift gears. We we talked here right before the break, Kyler, about uh, some of the news and trends and things that we're seeing in the, in the industry in general. But today we're going to shift gears and talk a, a, about a different topic. We've talked a lot, as I mentioned before, about back office technologies and enterprise wide technologies like ERP and HR technologies and CRM, supply chain, all that kind of stuff. We've even gotten to machine learning and AI and stuff like that. But today we're going to go with something that, that on the surface sounds really basic, but it's really important, and that is Office 365. And uh, a lot of organizations use Office 365 as sort of the de facto um, email and Office productivity uh, tool set that can do a lot more than just email. Obviously, there's SharePoint and uh, all the Microsoft Office type stuff as well. Uh, Microsoft has recently moved all of this to the cloud, and they've really pushed out the Office 365 cloud um, version, which we've talked about in previous episodes as well. And so what I wanted to do here is is have uh, uh, Chad Baker on the show. And Chad is the CEO and founder of a company called LAE Software that specializes in these sorts of Office uh, 365 upgrades, uh, more from the technical side of things. So we'll get into some technicalities or some technical aspects Uh, There's a fair to high likelihood I'll get it over my head uh, with some of the technical discussion. But as always, I'll try to bring it back to change management, process improvement, project management, some of the stuff that that I know well. So I definitely uh, like to stay inside my comfort zone in that way, but but at the same time, push it and uh, excited to have Chad on the show. So uh, Chad, thanks for being here today.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So
2: I guess to start, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you grew up in in this space and then if, if you could shift gears and tell us a little bit about lae software
0: yeah sure so uh, a little bit about my background i worked about 20 years in uh corporate i.t uh see the degree here <laughs> it kind of tells how long i've been, been working um i worked for mainly two companies that went through a lot of mergers but it's mainly healthcare and financial had multiple roles i uh, was a intern, I was a desktop support technician. I was a server admin, I was an engineer, an architect, a manager, and uh, also a director. And then I switched to uh, doing some consulting. So I spent about three years working for as a sales engineer for a consulting company. And then uh, in 2008, I founded LEE Software, which the LAE stands for least administrative effort, which comes from the old Microsoft MCSE exams. That would take one in a while, so it might still be there. But the questions would ask, um, the question would be phrased with least administrative effort, which one of these is the best answer? And there'd be multiple answers. And some of the answers were uh, both true, but you want the one that's the most efficient or with the least administrative effort. So that's kind of a a mantra for me is to, uh, I was writing my own tools and uh, now I want to write tools to make people more efficient. And uh, yeah, our, my first product was a uh, email efficiency tool and then kind of moved on from then. Um, but to kind of get back to uh, how Ellie was born, uh, I mentioned that I founded the company to write tools to be more efficient. And it started with, uh, a when I was working with various systems and those lots of different roles, um, one of the things I noticed was that I kept getting buried. So there would be, I had so many things to do and um, I didn't have enough time to do them, or wouldn't get the the funds we need to take care of them. Uh, it's the old project manager's triple constraint triangle of the scope, cost, and time problem. Um, so uh, when I'd have things I needed to do, lots of times we would go and present that to management. Management would say, "Well, we don't, we can't, we don't have that in the budget. We can't do that this year." So what happened is those projects would get pushed off until the next year. And those things kind of just kept building, kept building, kept building. And so what I started doing was just writing my own tools to manage the systems and get projects done, which kind of helped dig myself out of, uh, of getting buried by too much, too many problems and too many projects. Yeah. So uh, kind of an example of one of the, the tools that I built to kind of solve a problem was we had a um, we had SIP trunks, which SIP trunks are basically connections from your voice over IP solution out to where you can make external calls, and they only allowed you so many um, so many trunks, so many connections, and we were looking at possibly um, increasing the number we had, which is more cost to the business. And so we did an analysis of when we were using those trunks and how many calls were going out, how many calls were going in and uh, what we thought was right. And one of the things we found is that on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right after lunch, kind of right around 2 p.m., we would get inundated with a a large number of calls. So we did a a little more research on it and found that it was um, it was uh, fact spammers. So this was at the the financial services mortgage company and faxes were still important. And the, uh, so they would send in these, this kind of like spam messages that would just go right to people's faxes and they would be things like asphalt paving, that type of thing. And, but they would hit us all at the same time and would use up all the SIP trunks. So uh, what we ended up doing is I worked with our telephony guy and he built a a trigger on our phone system. And um, with the, can spam at when people send you marketing materials, they're supposed to add a way for you to opt out, which some of the fax spammers would do that. They'd give a number and you call the number and you put in your number and they would take you off their list. So uh, wrote some automation that basically used our telephony system to kind of hit back at them. So when they would hit us with a bunch of fax spam, I would hit them back with all the removals for all of our numbers and actually had the guy who managed one of these systems calls up and asked us to stop because it was costing him money because they were 800 numbers for the removals. And so he we said, well, we'll stop. You stop spamming us. So he took all of our numbers, added it to his list of, uh, do not basically the do not calls. Interesting. That's one that's fighting <laughs> fire with fire. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. So that, so you've got a, a, a couple of different, uh, tools that you've developed over, over time. And uh, actually, before I jump in and, and start asking you some more uh, questions, I have to, if you don't mind, can I, do you mind if I share the personal connection between you and I, Chad? Sure. That, yeah, I'd
0: right?
2: be good. So, so um, you you know, the way you and I met is uh, through our kids. And uh, our kids are on the same, uh, my younger son and your older older son is uh, mm-hmm. are on the basketball uh, same basketball team. I have a picture. Do you mind if I show the picture uh, yeah. on my phone? Yeah, or, I think I know which one. That's a great so one. there's... <laughs> So, so our kids are friends they won this championship a few weeks ago and I, I think that's when you and i were talking about all this stuff was during that tournament when they when they won that championship i'll try to show it on the camera if i can but it's uh there's our two kids right there <laughs> and uh the one on the uh the number 15 is my son and the number 10 is is your son so that was their the moment of victory when i think one of the bench players came in and put up a really cool shot to sort of seal the, seal the victory. And that was them freaking out over the, uh, over the victory. So it's kind of a, a cool connection. There it has nothing to do with anything. We're going to talk about today, <laughs> the, the personal there is, uh, with, with our kids. So, um, so I guess I, just to maybe back up for a second, maybe I kind of want to start up here at, at the big picture level and then work down into the more technical stuff. And by the way, for you and for the audience, as we work down into the more technical stuff, I'm going to become more and more of a fish out of water because some of the stuff is way more technical than I am. So I might ask some pretty dumb, basic questions, but um, I do want to understand this stuff more because it is such an important part in, in sometimes overlooked detail that's a really big detail um, within uh, digital transformations in general. But I guess when you, when you think about the stuff that you guys do, when you think about... Um, you know email and office 365 migration how does this how does this all tie into digital transformation and why is it so important for digital transformation
0: yeah so i think the uh, like office 365 those types of things the the productivity tools are all about trying to make people more productive <laughs> so um right. so when you think of digital transformation it's all about trying to get your company to be operating the at the most efficient level you can so um, implementing newer technologies that help people uh, be more efficient um, have the data available to them wherever they are and at what time they need it are kind of the the key things for um, the productivity tools Uh, one of the ones specifically to office 365 is uh, the one of the things that gives you is the exchange online is the extremely large mailboxes so Hmm. Kind of takes the load off of people to deal with email because you have a lot more space to um, actually store and then use that information if you need it so you're able to keep it longer and then also the accessibility side of it uh, being on a cloud platform it's accessible for more for more things like a, a mobile app on your phone your desktop a, a website um, and then also the being on a platform like office 365 they also roll out more Uh, features functionality faster, which makes people more productive or more secure. All right. Great conversation
2: so far. I'm here with Chad Baker from LAE Software. We're going to take a quick break, and I've got more questions for Chad. When we come back, we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
4: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
2: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about Office 365 migrations and a bunch of other stuff. So let's just jump right back into the conversation is this part of a broader trend? I mean, is everything we're going to talk about here today and and particularly what you do with this whole office 365 migration, is it safe to say that this is part of that broader trend towards moving to the cloud and trying to get as much data, you know, out of your four walls and out of your, you know, off your servers into the cloud? Is that, is that essentially what, what you're trying to accomplish here? Or is it something different?
0: Yeah, it's, it's mostly about, uh, the cloud migration side of it. And the, also the, um, one of the products we have that, uh, is mostly related to Office 365 migrations is um, more about getting kind of one of the big roadblocks out of the way of migrations. So um, whether that be like a exchange online migration or you're also seeing people as they're kind of going through digital transformation projects, they're also updating their their computers to newer versions of Windows and they're implementing um, new computers along with that. And also, uh, like Microsoft's OneDrive, that makes it easier for them to access their files on multiple locations as well.
2: Right. Yeah. And in, uh, I think sometimes organizations, it seems like they, and I don't know if you agree with this or if you see this or if it's just our bias sample from our client base, which typically our clients come to us asking for, um, a digital transformation that's centered on, you know, a big capital spend, like on an ERP system or a CRM or human capital or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of times they they miss some of this lower hanging fruit and some of this other aspects of a transformation related to O365. Are you seeing that at all or, or or are you seeing clients that are coming to you saying, hey, we want to lead with that. and That's sort of the core of our transformation. How does that all fit together, would you say?
0: Yeah, I would say it's um, a lot of the people see like the uh, Office 365 Exchange Online Migrations as kind of one of the building blocks to get to what they want to their their final destination. Um, some of them are doing it as a um, a way to get there. So they need to get on that platform so they can take advantage of the, the tools available to them. Um, others are doing it simply for the, the cost. They're looking at it from, it's, it's just cheaper to be able to manage it there. Right,
2: right. And are there still a lot of companies out there that have not yet made the shift from their on-premise office and email to to Office 365 in the cloud?
0: So um, I had actually read an article a while back that talked about how many people they thought have actually migrated to Office 365 and how many people they thought were on prem. And I think at the time it said it was somewhere around. They thought like half the companies had done it. we actually wrote some some uh, software that actually goes out and does some analysis of DNS records to help kind of figure out who's on Office 365. And what we found is it's that's, about, that's pretty close. Um, we analyzed, I um, can't remember the count of different, I think it was like 5,000 companies. We analyzed their DNS records and we found, um, I think it was 55% of them were um, already on Office 365. And then a smaller uh, percentage appeared to be on premise, which was about, I think it was somewhere around 45%, something like that, um, maybe closer to 40. And then the uh, the rest were on Google. So it was like 10% were on Google mail. Oh, okay.
2: Interesting. Um, okay, so maybe help us understand why, And I think you touched on this a little bit, maybe I'll ask it more explicitly and maybe we can, unpack it a little bit more, but why, why is, uh, this whole concept of migrating to office 365 and all the email migration that comes with it? Why is that so important to
0: organizations today? Um, so th- they get quite a bit when migrating to office 365. So you, it's, um, it's also a kind of a financial decision too. So a lot of the spending typically was the old, uh, purchase capitalize, depreciate pay maintenance model uh for software and office 365 is now the um it's more like as a service so it's more of an expense type budgeting they know exactly how much they're gonna be paying per year um it's a little bit lower cost um like if you look at it from a on a yearly basis Um, so there's the financial decision side there's the um the bundling of multiple things so uh when I used to work on the corporate side, I would have to deal with the Microsoft licensing every year. We have to figure out how many versions of Excel we had out there, how many versions of Visio, um, and we'd have to license all the software. We would have to do um, multiple things related to like our exchange licensing, upgrading our exchange servers. Uh, so it, Office 365 kind of makes that all easy. You're paying for the service. And with that, you get the um, whatever level you choose you're getting all the office applications, you're getting a uh, exchange mailbox with the very large size. So some of them are 50 gigabytes or hundred gigabytes um, with the also having the um, archive, which is unlimited, depending on the plan they choose, but it's much simpler because in your, I have this many people that are using it. I have this many licenses and um, their software automatically gets updated from uh, Microsoft as well.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And that I could see how that would be a pretty complex and cumbersome undertaking, you know, as far as moving all that data and all those email files to, to the cloud. I mean, if you think about a a company with a thousand employees or whatever it is times, however many emails they've accumulated and hoarded over time, (laughs) you know, there's a, there's a whole, it's a pretty big migration. Is there, is there a lot of like data, like in an in a systems, transition or a a systems deployment, you worry about the data, like transactional data within an ERP system or a financial system or whatever. It, and you end up cleaning up data, you map the data and all that stuff just to get, get it all into the new system. How is that different for like, with what you're doing with emails? How is that call it data migration process different from, you know, what you might see in a traditional application that you're, you know, migrating the data over. Is there a difference or.
0: Yeah. The, uh, I guess the difference is more it's less the data is less mapped so it's kind of more unstructured data and it's more personal it's not usually shared data it's more tied just to the person um so from what we've seen when migrating it uh it there's things in there that people need like a a good example is um when i worked for a mortgage company and uh the 2008 kind of fallout in the mortgage industry, um, one of the things that they had to do was go back and defend how they, they uh, wrote the loans. And um, because people had a lot of that email data from that time, they were able to go back and defend um, how they wrote the loans and basically show that it was a good loan to write and basically push back on people who want the company to buy back those loans. So having that data in email actually saved the company quite a bit of money.
2: So in that case, like, you know, can you give us a sense of order of magnitude of, you know, a com- a company with a hundred or thousand employees or, or pick a number, you know, what, what's the volume of emails and data that you're typically transitioning in, in those cases? Do you have any metrics or, or averages or ranges that would give us an order of magnitude of how, how big of an undertaking this is?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wide range. Um, the. Uh, some companies started out with pretty small mailboxes, so they have, um, so for instance, when I first started, I think our mailbox sizes were like around five megabytes. <laughs> a lot of uh, yeah. individual emails are five megabytes now. Um, right. so the people that were, um, been in, been around for a long time is usually an indicator where you're going to have a lot of email data. If the uh, people have been working in the company for a long time, say 20 years, or, um, around the time when mailbox limits were smaller, a lot of those people, what they would do is they would take, um, and this is related to one of our products, is they would take the email that was in their mailbox and they would move it out to an Outlook uh, PST file and then keep that data in the PST file and kind of just keep adding new PST files. So from a a size perspective, um, people that are newer to a company usually have small mailboxes, usually under like five gigabytes. Um, but we've seen people who um, push the limits of the Microsoft E5 license, which is a 100 gigabyte mailbox, um, because they have so much data either stored in their mailbox or within the, uh, the PST data. Got it,
2: interesting. Yeah, I could only imagine, I mean, I think about just my own email and how much stuff, I, I would consider myself, first of all, an email hoarder. I hoard emails, I don't delete anything unless I know, I know for certain I'm never gonna need that email again. I, I save it all and I file it all and it's probably, it's probably unhealthy to some degree, but I imagine there's other people <laughs> out there like that they, they want to migrate all this stuff over to O365. To so, um, so you work a lot with this, uh, concept called PSTs. I think you may have mentioned it already in this discussion, but, um, you, you, part, essentially from what I understand, essentially what you're doing is you're migrating PSTs from the on-prem office 365 or the on-prem office over to office 365 in the cloud. What is what exactly is a PST? Maybe help us understand just sort of the fundamental data structure, whatever you want to call it.
0: Yeah, so they're called PSTs because they're um, the extension on the file is dot .pst. So like Words dot, .doc, PSD is dot .pst. Yeah. So most people call them PSTs. That's how they know. Them. But in Outlook, they're called Outlook data files or personal stores. And what they are is it's a it's a data file that you're able to connect to Outlook and it looks kind of just like a mailbox within Outlook. And you can drag and drop data out of your mailbox into the PST, and it's actually just stored in that file. Um, so you can imagine those files kind of just keep keep growing and growing to a, to a large size. Um, trying to think. The, it, the um, one other thing kind of related to PSTs is you can drag and drop the data over to them or like uh, certain Outlook versions had it kind of default turned on where it would actually auto archive some of your email data to a PST to kind of move it out mm-hmm. to get you under those mailbox limits gotcha
2: okay and then uh and so your tool then your company and the solution you provide is a way to automate that migration of these PST files on-prem into the cloud is that correct or, or maybe help Help me if I'm oversimplifying, maybe help explain Mm -hmm. what exactly the tool.
0: Yeah, so the the way the software works is it is a um, software package that people push out with um, whatever desktop management software they have. So if they have uh, Microsoft's group policy objects so GPOs or Microsoft system center, uh, they just push out software. It runs from uh, the desktops, laptops and goes out and discovers all the PSTs that are connected and all the ones that are disconnected, finds them, inventories them, and then migrates all that data up to Office 365 where it's easier for uh, companies to manage. All right, great conversation so far. I'm here with Chad
2: Baker from LAE Software. We're gonna take a quick break and I've got more questions for Chad when we come back. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground
5: Patrol. And download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
2: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about Office 365 migrations and a bunch of other stuff. So let's just jump right back into the conversation. Are there certain signs or red flags that you look for with potential customers of yours that it's time for them to move to the cloud? I mean, I know everyone's sort of going that direction, but from what you're saying, only about half actually have. So for those other half of organizations that have not yet moved to cloud version of Office 365, are there certain... Uh, red flags or symptoms that you see that say, "Hey, it's it's really time for you to do this," or have they already made up their minds and they're doing it, and that's why they're reaching out to you? I guess how would you how would you assess that?
0: Yeah, most of the um, the things that we run into are more related specifically to the PST migrations. Um, but for the the Office 365, um, I, I, majority of the people we talk to, if they haven't migrated, they have plans to migrate. I think Microsoft makes it pretty attractive mm-hmm. for them to. Um, actually migrate to office 365, but there's other things that they, um, they want to be able to take advantage of there, um, that might be forcing them to migrate. So that could be like uh, regulations similar to like GDPR, um, or in, in the States we have quite a few, um, I think California has some regulations that are very similar to GDPR where, um, In that basically they say you have to know where all of your data is and you have to be able to search it and you have to be able to apply policy to it. So if that data is speaking specifically PSTs, if that data is out in the PST, you can't do those things. So that's why you need to migrate it up to Office 365. Um, Some of the other things that um, we see uh, people, kind of the red flags, it's kind of time to migrate the PSTs also is like, if people have a large number of support tickets um, they're spending money on like hard drive recoveries um, or if they're if they find if they do an analysis, a lot of people don't really realize how much data it's space it's taking up. So if they do an analysis of their enterprise storage or backup systems and find that uh, they're taking up a lot of space.
4: Hmm.
2: Interesting. And yeah, I, I imagine there's a big uh, cost savings or business benefit, business value that comes out of that, right?
0: Yeah, the the. The, one of the biggest things is once you have migrated to Office 365, the um, if you still have PSDs you're managing data in PSDs and you also have them up off in Office 365, you're essentially paying double to manage that data because you're paying for the space. You know it's not free space, but it's paid for space. Um, you have that space you're already paying for in Office 365, but you're still buying enterprise storage. You're still paying for the backup space, the backup processing. Um, so the, um, I kind of forgot where I was going there with that.
2: <laughs> yeah. The this cost savings or the, yeah, the, the cost business
0: value. that Yeah. You're paying double. So, um, you, you immediately start, um, one of the hard things that, uh, um, when somebody would come to me with uh, an idea or a sales pitch and they would talk about the cost savings, lots of times they, um, they would say, oh, well, you're going to save this much this much man hours and that's going to save you this much money. And it's like, well, it's hard to realize that, right? It's like, well, where do I realize that money? I understand that you're saving time and stuff like that, but how do you realize that? And when it comes to um, removing that off of your enterprise storage, your backup systems, what it does is it, um, it delays future purchases. So um, like one of the things I found by um, watching storage, at least at the companies I worked at, is that storage grows about 20 to 25% per year. So when we would plan out storage purchases, we'd have to plan out for that growth. So if you're able to take that data, get it onto office 365, where you're already paying to manage it, then you realize the cost savings in not having to um, buy new storage or more space for backups. Right. Right. Well, that kind of, uh,
2: it, it, it kind of leads to a, a comment that uh, we have here from the audience, or, uh, one of the first comments or questions we, we've gotten. And by the way, um, just to take a quick uh, moment to uh, call out some of the places that people are joining us from today. Uh, we have people from all over the world. We've got people, there's someone in Houston, um, Sarajevo, I don't know if that's a country, Sarajevo with a J E I'm not familiar with that city or country if if it is, but Someone is here from there, someone from Albania, someone from Spain, so um, and then a few others from the U.S. as well. So we've got a pretty pretty global audience here. But one of the um, comments that came up that I'd be curious if you if you if this resonates with you or if you've seen this uh, in your uh, migrations and some of the uh, Office three sixty five migrations is uh, the comment was we are recently helping with Microsoft Teams direct routing and and clients are having service quality issues. Um, so, have you seen are there any service quality issues that you're seeing as it relates to office three sixty five or um, you know uh, reliability issues or accessibility issues, uh, security issues? Are, are there any risks along those lines that you see in these sorts of migrations once they've made the shift over to o three sixty five?
0: Yeah, what we've been seeing it could be related to kind of what they're they're seeing there um, with the the direct routes is I think um, uh, Microsoft was pretty well prepared. But wasn't completely prepared for COVID when uh, a lot of people, a lot of people went home. Um, it kind of opened up a lot of bandwidth to their systems. Mm. So you think about yeah. cloud services being accessible from anywhere. Um, if you're at a corporate location, you're uh, bottlenecking quite a bit of your bandwidth either for your your teams calls or for your email transfers of data. You're bottlenecking that on your corporate infrastructure, which usually has QoS policies, which help protect the the bandwidth so that each person is able to access it. But it might slow down somebody's connection. So you're almost kind of creating speed limits for everybody. Where uh, I think it, with everybody going going home basically is you got rid of all the speed limits, and everybody has you know close to a lot of people have gig connections at home, which a lot of corporations don't even have the connections. So uh, I think it opened up a lot right. of uh, bandwidth constraint problems within those cloud services. And from what I've been seeing is that uh, Microsoft is starting to create their own uh, uh, quality of service type uh, mitigating controls in place. So for instance, one of them is that each person, um, when we're transferring up PST data, it, we're noticing that they're limiting us to about three to four megabits per second. So not letting people connect, not use up more than that. So that's kind of a, a per person. And then also um, we've heard uh, with people doing mailbox migrations to Office 365 that they're running into um, uh, bandwidth limitations and they actually have to call Microsoft and have them kind of open up the bandwidth to allow them to transfer more.
2: Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like a work in
2: progress, like much of the cloud is at the moment, especially with with the COVID remote environment that we're in right now. So um, so when, when organizations uh, go through this process of migrating, and, and again, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe we can go into a little deeper, but how do organizations typically go about the process of doing that migration from on-prem to the cloud Office 365?
0: Yeah, so uh, one of the first ones is email. Uh, Actually, let me go back a little bit further. (laughs) The first one is authentication, so uh, people need to connect up there in its typically Active Directory, so they're on-premises Microsoft Active Directory. Um, They connect that up to Azure Directory, start um, replicating the accounts uh, and get the authentication set up within their Azure Active Directory. And then with Exchange, they um, they basically implement um, a connection to Exchange Online with their on-premises Exchange, and then you start migrating all the mailboxes to Office 365. And then um, kind of following on to that with as far as data transfers, um, then people, what they'll do is they'll use a tool called the Known Folder Move, which takes all of their workstation documents and, um, Data and take that and move it into a uh, their OneDrive, and then OneDrive will sync that data up to Office 365, and then now it's accessible from multiple locations. Gotcha. Okay. Good deal. And then, how when you
2: look at uh, this sort of migration, then um, how long does it usually take, and and how much does it usually cost? And by the way, I'll preface this before we answer that. I'll say I I I. Uh, that's a very difficult question to answer, and I, I almost uh, feel bad asking it because <laughs> ask it's hard to answer without knowing like a lot more detail. But just in general, like, are there any metrics or uh, measures or order of magnitude sorts of indicators that would suggest how long it might take, how much it might cost to to do this sort of transition?
0: Yeah, so the um, so the Office 365 side, you're paying for your licensing and that can kind of vary based upon which service you get um and the uh i can speak mostly just about what we run into mostly which is the the pst migrations and so for pst migrations what we found with the microsoft uh, controls is we can do about uh, uh, 25 gigabytes per week per user so that's roughly uh, on average we see about 50 gigabytes per person so estimate in about two weeks to get somebody kind of fully migrated but that's running in parallel to other people so they're all kind of running at the same time so depending on how many people uh, you want to be migrating um, you could be roughly about that amount of time for the pst data to get migrated Um, and then for uh, pst migrations the cost is uh, usually under ten dollars per user like for what we do is we do volume discounting so licensing is is starts at 10 it comes down with volume discounting and then um, if you want to add on services, you can, but typically uh, we have a lot of people who implement our, our software themselves. So it's just the internal cost of uh, managing the software. Yeah. And now
2: on your uh, on the LAE the LAE website, you have a uh, cost calculator right that, that sort of estimates how how much this would cost based on some different criteria. Uh, yeah, is that a good tool for people to kind of get get a ballpark estimate of what it would cost?
0: It is. So the the cost calculator is um, it's kind of designed for two things: to give people an idea of what the the cost would be to migrate their data based on how many users they have, or if they know how many users have PSTs, um, so they can get kind of an accurate a uh, cost there. But um, also, it it kind of helps put a number next to kind of all the problems with uh, managing PSTs locally. So we throw in some assumptions about what percentage of PSTs are on your enterprise storage. We put in the cost of a hard drive recovery if somebody were to lose a hard drive. Um, So we have all those things in there and people can change the values as well. And it helps you estimate, you know, like what is my cost of doing nothing? What is my cost to migrate and kind of help you make a little better decision there.
2: Right, right. Now, what is uh, what is your website by the way, just so if someone wants to check that out or check out the calculator?
0: Yeah, it's laesoftware.com.
2: Easy enough, I, <laughs> I, I probably could have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs>
5: um,
2: so when when organizations are going through this sort of uh, transition or migration to Office 365, um, who's usually responsible for that or who usually spearheads it? Is it the CIO or is it someone else within the organization?
0: Yeah, so we see the um, the biggest drivers coming from either the uh, support groups. So we see support groups that are um, are driving projects for migration, and that one's a little more specific to PSDs. But um, from the uh, to migrate to Office three sixty five, that usually comes from the team that manages the on premise Exchange. They're usually the the teams that are planning that out and doing the migration. Um, I think the business driver comes from uh, more of the financial side, at the when they're looking at the cost savings. Uh, so they'll say we should do this to save money, kind of, and then they hand that to the exchange team to plan out the project and do the migration. And we've also seen a little bit of the uh, security compliance groups, their uh, their requirements um, around. Um, Being able to manage that data once they have it in Office 365 and being able to apply the policies that they've come up with and got approval from the executive board, like about data retention and uh, also being able to search the data. All right. Great conversation so far. I'm here
2: with Chad Baker from LAE Software. We're going to take a quick break and I've got more questions for Chad. When we come back, we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
1: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
2: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about Office 365 migrations and a bunch of other stuff. So let's just jump right back into the conversation. You know what, one of the, uh, I know you've listened to a few episodes of this this show uh, in the past and I'm not sure which ones you listened to or if if, if this was a, a topic, but a lot of times, if not most of the time, uh uh, somehow comes back to change management and the people side of the equation. I, t- I can't help but go there, mm-hmm. uh, especially when we're talking about something super technical, partly because it's my comfort zone, but partly because it's, <laughs> I know it's important too. Mm-hmm. Um, but what when you think about the sort of migration, um, how does it affect the uh, the organization and the team? Not so much from the cost perspective, which I know you've talked about the sort of the cost benefit and the value and the ROI of it. Yeah. But how how are people impacted by it or are they? Is there is there a significant impact?
0: Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that um, people are impacted by that you wouldn't expect. So for uh, people who are on on-premises, uh, say they're using Outlook with Exchange on-prem and they come into the connect via VPN connection and they're accessing their email, they may not have like two-factor authentication. So once you migrate to Office 365 and that data is a little more accessible, you also need to secure it a little bit better. So, um, at that same time, people will take advantage of the features they have available, and um, those might be new to some people. And it, it, most people are a little more um, used to two factor authentication, like when you log into your bank account, and you get the text message, that type of thing. Um, but people who, who aren't used to it probably takes a little bit of communication and training to let them know that, Hey, when you go into set up your connection, it's going to ask you uh, for kind of a second factor for authentication. Um, Some of the other things are the, they might be used to kind of like an application update schedule, like their, their uh, corporate team might update their systems once a month, every Sunday, that type of thing with uh, office 365, lots of times the updates are, Um, a little more rolled out and more specific to the users. So you might get a a notice from Office saying you need to update Office and then you click yes and then it closes down all your apps and updates Office. So just knowing that that's going to close down all your apps when you do that. Um, Some of the other things are the, like moving to to any new version of uh, software. If you have any integrations, like you might break some of the application integrations that you have currently so if you have some software that, say, talks to Microsoft Access or talks to Excel, um, knowing that you need to fix that for for new versions. Um, one of the other big things with um, Office 365 Exchange Online that a lot of people miss is that um, so Exchange Online is protected for disaster recovery, meaning that they, they do replicate the data. So there's an email server that has my data on it, and that's replicated to another location um but that is not backed up so uh microsoft inherently doesn't back up so you still need um backup of your email data and there's a there's a few services out there that will do that connect directly to exchange online and do it but a lot of people miss that that the uh, they, they kind of think microsoft handles it all for you but they don't do the backups they'll do disaster recovery but not backups um and then the, um, I, I mentioned PSTs, that's lots of times a kind of an afterthought for people. And then also uh, some of the legacy archives. So we, because we deal with some, the legacy technical debt type things, we run into people that are also have like an email archiving solution that they may um, want to get that data out of and put up to Office 365. So like uh, EMC Source 1 is kind of an example of one we're, we're kind of helping out with now. Um, and then also the, um, one of the big advantages that I think people should take take advantage of uh, once they move up to Office 365 and Exchange Online is that now that people are at home, um, you no longer have to uh, use VPN tunnels for that traffic. So you can do, uh, depending on your security controls, um, but you can um, you can set it up to where uh, that. Traffic is actually sent directly to Office 365. So you take all that traffic off of your VPN connections and your VPN connections are, can now just be used for more of the internal corporate data. Hmm. Okay.
2: So it sounds like the, the, uh, you know, the back office IT departments are going to be affected with things like, uh, backup and, you know, having to know how to manage that new infrastructure. But the end users too, you know, the people on the front lines are also impacted because of two-factor authentication and whatnot. So it sounds like the people side of change or the human side of change is applicable even here where it, on paper or on the surface, it sounds like a simple enough migration, right? You're just doing right. stuff it doesn't really affect me as, a, as an end user, but yet it does, right?
0: It does. And if you're combining that with a uh, new operating system, there's always all the, the changes and uh, things people are used to related to that. Um, and also the, uh, like OneDrive, So like, you know, I always, always went here to find my files. Well, now they're all in one drive and that's synced up. And, um, if you go to a new computer, it does not automatically download. So you have to know that once you open it, you have to wait for it to download. Then it's local. So yeah, there's, there is some, uh, big changes there. Yeah. So just helping, helping people
2: navigate that is, is important. And it's, uh, reminds me a little bit of whenever a company implements a new HR systems, like a new benefits or payroll system, it seems like, or it sounds like in theory, that that's more of a impact to the HR department, you know, that they're, they're gonna be affected because they've got a new system. Well, actually you're, you're affecting every employee in the company when you replace, uh, you know, an HR system. And the same thing is true here. It may not be a, a massive impact, you know, major business process changes or anything like that, but it is uh, maybe a more incremental impact, but across the board, across more people than most, technology rollouts I would think
0: and we've seen kind of the mix of um I think one of the biggest things to think about in that change management is the communication side of it um one of the problems with sending out emails that have a lot of information is lots of times people just don't read that information um but the ones that the ones that have been successful at least give them um all the information they they would need and then they also do kind of um smaller reminders letting them know that this is coming if you need to refer back here's what to look at kind of thing i guess there's some there's some irony that just you triggered
2: my my (laughs) mind there that you you can't just email like a bulletin or email an update to people because they might not be able to get in their email (laughs) so (laughs) the the whole uh iron or the not the irony but the chicken and the egg sort of a, a challenge i would think from a from a change perspective
0: yeah, that's a, uh, uh, I've always thought that uh, one of the best products I could possibly create is one that uh, gets people to read e- emails that you send them. But, uh,
2: your tool does not do that yet. Is that what you're saying? You <laughs> yeah, not exactly. not yet.
0: <laughs> that's a, that's a 3.0 <laughs> <laughs> update. <laughs> right.
2: Well, if anyone can figure it out, I, I think it would probably be <laughs> you. So yeah, how that project comes along. <laughs>
5: um,
2: so what about uh, data compliance? Um, I was on your website uh, last night and looking around at sort of the, you know, the different use cases and, in you know, really what the solution is, quite frankly, because I didn't fully understand it, but going to your website helped a lot. But uh, one thing that you, that you talk about on the website is data compliance. Um, how does that all factor in or, you know, what does data compliance have to do with an O365 migration or vice versa? How does an O365 migration help with data compliance?
0: Yeah, so if you if you tie it back to, I I didn't get my CISSP, but I did some studying for it. So I do remember some things from it. Um, the, uh, the three major components of um, cybersecurity are the confidentiality, integrity and availability. So for um, when you think about and this is kind of specifically to uh, PSTs, but um, the, on the confidentiality side, really what that is about is you don't want your data to get out in the open, meaning you don't wanna have a breach, you don't wanna have somebody to access to it. So uh, having PST still stored on people's computers, if, um, if somebody were to lose their computer and that computer is not a uh, drive encrypted, more and more companies are encrypting their hard drives, but there are still some that are not. If that gets out in the open, somebody can get access to the data, even if they don't have a username and password to the computer. Um, and then PSTs are extremely easy to open to crack them, even if they're password protected. So they can actually get to that data. So if you kind of take it back to the the mortgage side, again, think about how much uh, personal information is stored in somebody's email when you're working with somebody on a, like a, a mortgage loan, you're sending them your, your bank statements, your social security number, all of those types of things. So, um, the breach side is the big confidentiality. Um, the integrity, it's not so much because integrity is more about data tampering. And with email being so personal to people, it's less of a tampering problem when it comes to, especially PSTs. But on the availability, that's the biggest one. So um, if you were to lose your laptop or if your uh, hard drive crashes, then, uh, or it gets hit by ransomware and gets encrypted that way, um, the the data is gone and typically people don't back up desktop computers because they just it's too costly so that data is gone or um in the case of like a hard drive crash or something like that you can take it to a data recovery uh company and then they're going to charge you i think it's a little over three thousand dollars sometimes upwards of four thousand dollars to try to recover the data off of that uh that hard drive so that's the other big cybersecurity component is the uh, availability side Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's and it
2: seems like that's becoming more and more of a risk, you know, in these these times, it seems like cybersecurity risk is one of the biggest risks that a lot of IT organizations aren't prepared for or don't quite have the the right solution for. So it sounds like this could be a good uh, counter to some of those cybersecurity issues.
0: Yeah, the um, we're, we're seeing more and more um, or hearing of companies that are getting hit by ransomware attacks. Um, so having that data in a place where you can't, uh, have software that encrypts the data. So like in office 365, as opposed to only stored on your computer kind of helps, uh, protect you. And that it, if, it, if you were to get hit, you can just download it to the data, to another computer. Right. Right.
2: Um, so what, when you think about migrating from, uh, or, or to office 365, What are some of the other risks or considerations that we haven't already covered that the audience should be aware of if they're thinking about going through, or maybe they're in the middle of an Office 365 migration?
0: Yeah. So, um, some of the things that, uh, some of the risks of going to that service, um, are that like it's under Microsoft's control now. (laughs) So you're paying for the service but um there are some risks so they they'll make some changes to you so i use office 365 myself and i get notices of hey this change is coming you don't really have a choice um but some of the things that um i think people aren't ready for are like uh they um, one of the ones i saw is they started limiting and this could be part of the the bandwidth problem that i think they're having but the um uh, number of messages that are allowed to come in per mailbox so if you had a, like, especially IT support people who have a mailbox that all the emails from their uh, monitoring systems email them, that can be pretty high volume. Um, so you take that mailbox, put it on Office 365, you get that high volume. It's not gonna accept them because it's, it's uh, too high. So um, policies that are enacted by the service provider, I think is one of the things to mm. kind of keep in mind as some, one of the big risks. Um, he uh i think already covered like the application updates um and then one of the other things is uh latency so depending on Hmm. your your applications is uh so when most people think about network connections they think about uh bandwidth being the big one do i have enough bandwidth available to be able to um, run video and also um, download my email those types of things but when you're moving uh, your data to a location that may be further away, you have the network distance, which is latency and some applications that are not designed to work well with that. Um, you'll see um, a little bit slower performance. So one of the ones that I've seen is, uh, in, in Outlook, Outlook is designed really well for working with high latency because for your primary mailbox, what it does is it synchronizes the data, with your, your mailbox so that way the latency is always really low because you're really just talking to your local computer and then it's synchronizing data. Um, but if you go to use the online archive where a lot of people are putting some of their older archive data is in the online archive. Um, when you go to try to access that data, it's going across the internet with there's more network transmission errors, it's much higher latency. You could see some slower performance and even in Outlook's case, it will actually hang up on you sometimes when accessing it.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, especially if you think about organizations that might have locations in rural areas or, you know, less connected parts of the world, you know, that that could be a real challenge for, for organizations making the move to any sort of cloud solution, but especially something as critical as email. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, you know, this is a, a great discussion, an interesting topic. And uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, at least to get people's heads turning or or the wheels turning in their heads on, on how to start thinking about these sorts of um, migrations Uh, before we close out though. um, Just tell us one more time. uh, What's, what's your website address? Uh, Maybe repeat your name. Are you on social media? You know, how can people get a hold of you? I guess is the the best way to ask that question.
0: Yeah. So the the website is laesoftware.com. And uh, we also have a a contact page there. Um, And then you can also find me on LinkedIn is probably the the best place if you want to connect with me personally. Um, So just look for Chad Baker, LE Software, and uh, you should be able to find me there. All right. Thanks a lot, Chad. Great having you
2: on the show. Really appreciate you being here. A lot of good stuff we covered there and a lot of thoughts that uh, Kyler and I want to discuss as sort of a debrief and diving into some of those topics. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about some of those things when when we return from Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back.
5: Download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
2: All right, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. New episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, all the podcast platforms. So if you, you listen to Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to us. Check us out every Wednesday. You can also watch us on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to uh, both the Third Stage and the Eric Kimberling uh, YouTube channels there. So we just had Chad Baker on the show talking about Office 365 migrations and a bunch of other stuff. What were some of your observations or questions coming out of that discussion, Kyler?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations on the big basketball win. That picture was epic. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah, it was really funny. I had it on my phone for some, I've had it on my phone for some time now, so uh, yeah. Good,
3: good. That's so cool. Um, But I really liked this conversation. I think it's really applicable to a lot of people that might not even be kind of on the digital transformation core team, or I think everyone can relate to going through some sort of, even if it's an upgrade with Microsoft um, 365 and the Office Suite and those types of things. So I wanted to kind of start with the storage piece of it, because I know he talked a lot about kind of advising on that. And it hit home for me, because I remember at a a corporate job I used to have, if you got on legal hold, you could have unlimited email storage. And that was like, amazing. If you were on legal hold, it was like a, a big celebration. You didn't even know, is a Fortune two hundred company, so you had no idea why you were on legal hold. But at the same time, like you got got bigger storage, so you never had to worry about coming in or traveling when your your mailbox is like a hundred percent full and trying to you know delete stuff on your phone. So I wondered, from a digital transformation standpoint, with your clients, do you have to take these kind of office products and day to day? Um, overall functions into consideration when looking at say a a new ERP option or a different CRM system or how important is that consideration?
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty important. Um, And first of all, I think it's funny in some ways that you guys were able to find that silver lining of being on a a legal hold.
3: Oh yeah, uh, we were so excited. It was a big deal. So you're either
2: suing someone or being sued, which is bad news. But the good news is we get unlimited space now because we can't
3: exactly. <laughs> It was well, well worth it. <laughs> exactly,
2: Every IT person's nightmare is that I know. everyone gets to save everything <laughs> and hoard even more information than they already were. Right.
3: Um, Absolutely.
2: But uh, yeah, that, that um, it's actually a really interesting point that you bring up we didn't talk about it with Chad, although in hindsight, it'd be a good, a good question for, for him and others we have on the show. But that is, you know, as, as, Microsoft moves Office 365 to the cloud and even as other ERP vendors move their products to the cloud, any enterprise technology that's moving to the cloud, um, you have to watch out for those, those cost accelerators that can kick in, and oftentimes it's storage based. So you're using up X amount of storage, you you kick into the next uh, pricing tier, which is going to be higher. So um, yeah, it's one of the real risks and dangers, I think, and the real high costs of, of cloud solutions. I know, Everyone loves cloud. It's a, it's, it's almost to me personally, it's a little nauseating how pro cloud the industry is. Because, yeah, it's cool. It's a cool idea, but man, there's some there's some hidden costs there that really can gouge you long term. And I think there's a day of reckoning, honestly, in the not too distant future. You know, in a few years out, I think you're going to see a lot of companies that say, you know what, we've had enough of these the, these escalating costs, and now it's getting out of control, and we're we're spending way too much. I may have mentioned on the show before, we have we have one client we're working with now that just uh, migrated to SAP, S4 HANA. And with all the costs and all the subscriptions and the add-ons and all the stuff that they're getting dinged for, it's over half of their IT budget, half of their annual IT budget is going just to SAP. And to me, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's just ridiculous that you would spend all this time and money moving to the cloud under the guise of potentially saving money and all this, you know, upside that they're selling you. And now you're just you're getting gouged so it, it is a real thing and so you know you back to this good news bad news uh theme that I, that I was mentioning a minute ago the good news is now you've got everything in the cloud you don't have to worry about your infrastructure and all the servers and all the updates and all that stuff that you know can bog down an it department that's the good news you don't have to worry about that now but the bad news is someone's doing that and you're still paying for it so rather than paying for it internally now there's a fair to high likelihood you're paying a vendor even more money to do what you were doing before. So there's obviously other intangible benefits, you know, beyond that. But just if you look at the dollars and cents, that um, escalating and long-term costs can be very, very real and significant. And typically after, you know, we find with a lot of enterprise technologies, the break-even point is about five years or so, five or six years, is where, yes, cheaper for a few years because, you've gotten rid of a lot of servers, you're paying a lower, um, you, you don't have as big of an upfront license acquisition. Now you're just paying a lower uh, annual subscription, but that annual subscription never goes away. So at some point, it's like leasing a car. At some point, leasing a car or having that ongoing subscription becomes more expensive because you're constantly paying it and it's never going away. In fact, it's it's getting more expensive. So yeah, very good point that it's important to realize with your migrating from Office 365 or any other sort of enterprise uh, cloud technology.
3: Yeah, definitely. And when it comes to that, I know Chad had mentioned just the overall transition, specifically in the last year with um, the COVID-19 pandemic and moving um, their workforce, many companies' workforce, to home or off-site in the cybersecurity um, risks that come with that. Um, and we we talked kind of about that at the beginning, but just as a change management or a process expert, how big of a, of a migration is that in moving all of your information to be accessed at home, whether it's, you know, share file or, or a lot of companies just weren't set up that way, right? They had kind of their security within their building or on premise and they had to kind of move it out, um, so that, uh, employees could work from home. How, how big of a transition was that?
2: It was, I mean, it was pretty big and it was also very compressed. I mean, it's very abrupt and very sudden. So, you know, organizations didn't have time to plan for it. Like they probably would have liked to. Um, but it is big in that, you know, you think back to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago when companies would have, you know, the occasional remote worker that's, um, you know, working from home a day every so often, or you have sales team members that are traveling, and they would have like VPN, or they'd have to dial in, and like it was a big deal to get into the systems. Um, and now all of a sudden, it, you know, you're kind of accessing this stuff over Wi-Fi. And, and to, the, to, the, uh, to the end user, it's probably not as big of a, um, an impact or a change you know, as far as working remotely and all the stuff behind the scenes that needs to happen. But for the IT department, it's a pretty big deal because now you've got to worry more about security protocols and accessibility and how do we tighten up security? What's our you know fallback plan if if there is a breach at the at the local level? Like if my computer gets hacked, you know what what's the what what uh, security do I have in place? And now you now you need to worry a lot more about each individual device that's accessing your systems uh, in the cloud or you know if, if you happen to have on prem still that that too. Um, So it's, it's just, it's sort of magnified, you know, created a multitude of touch points and entry points that now you've got to tighten up. And uh, again, not as big of a deal for end users as it is for your IT department or whoever's handling your cybersecurity and accessibility from a technical perspective.
3: Yeah. Um, You know that, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. So, so just so I understand, would someone like Chad come in and teach organizations how to do something like that um, logistically. And then maybe someone like third stage would come in as a change management option. Is that kind of how that would, would work?
2: Yeah, so his, his company, from what I understand, will, will handle the uh, the technical aspects of the migration. So uh, moving all those email files and all the data you know, from the on-premise Microsoft office over to the cloud. Um, but as far as... You know, how that's going to be maintained longer term, um, what the impact your IT organization is, what the impact is to your end users, all the change management stuff. That's typically something that, that we would help with since we specialize in that. And then certainly, you know, there's the project management piece too. If that if that Office 365 migration is part of a broader digital transformation, typically that's, you know, that project management or program management is a role that we we play as well, just to make sure that all the moving parts of your transformation are, are tying together the way they, they should.
3: Yeah. It's so interesting. There's so many different kind of little silos of partners you can work with to optimize. You know, it's, it's a great um, kind of example of how to do your research when it comes to the different partners that you can utilize in your digital transformation, not just maybe the big system integrators that say, you know, oh, we can do all of that. Well, there are people that actually, you know, specialize in it. Um, so I think that that was neat to learn when it comes to the change management piece, I wondered if you could, because as I'm thinking through this conversation, it's again, triggering a lot of past, you know, trauma for me in working with with upgrades when it comes to Office 365. Like they move a button, you know, in the overall look and feel, and then I can't find it, you know, for the next couple years or the search function changes. And I I would say from my own experience, productivity really goes down. So how, how do you kind of, um, get in front of that when it comes to upgrading things that really are a day-to-day function of all of your employees when it comes to things like like Microsoft Office?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, because that impact is so broad and it affects so many people. Uh, it's really important. And, and, you know, you're dealing with different types of people throughout an organization, different education levels, different competencies and skills and comfort with technology in general. So you really have to even more than other types of migrations, you have to focus on keeping things, not keeping things simple, but making the change very digestible. I mean, you really have to spoon feed it. You have to make it easy for employees. And, you know, it's not like, you know, if you go, if you roll out a financial system or a warehouse management system or whatever technology, usually it's, you know, it's kind of affecting one group and you focus on that one group and it's very focused on a certain function within the business and so not that it's easy by any means it's still very difficult but at least there's some parameters around it with office i mean you're dealing with every single employee a huge spectrum of different job functions and things like that um you know you think about for example you think about you know a um you know an it admin person who uses office 365 is very technically sophisticated and you know can figure stuff out easier on their own and then you've got, you know, a, a manufacturing shop floor operator or, a you know, a warehouse clerk that their main job is more manual and physical. And, you know, the technology is just sort of there. They have these touch points of technology, but they're not necessarily as comfortable with it. It's not necessarily a part of their job that they enjoy as much as, say, an IT person. So you've got this huge spectrum you've got to deal with and you've got to figure out how do I manage the change for all these different people um, in a product that, like I said before, is such a fundamental oftentimes overlooked core part of how, how people do their jobs every day.
3: Yeah, definitely. And the in the different access points, um, it kind of reminds me or parallels in my mind, um, integrating, um, an ERP system, as opposed to a more kind of vertical type of system. That's just in one department, um, like a, a financial system or CRM or something like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very true.
3: Yeah. So when um, going through these different types of changes for that really, you know, that front end user type of thing, who, who or how would you go about planning for that change? Would it be like the same readiness assessment um, and understanding what that looks like? Or say you're changing email systems, um, would you would you go through kind of the same sort of change management plan that uh, you would do in a digital transformation.
2: You you would. I would say that you would you would definitely do that. So that's the similarity. That the difference is that you're really getting into uh, more detailed nuances. Typically, of you know, like you mentioned, the button. You know, where did the button go? Um, that's that's a common challenge for any sort of technology upgrade. But for for something like Office that everyone's touching, that you know, that small button move is going to have a much bigger impact on the, on the business and more people are going to be frustrated by it and that one little thing can have a much you know bigger cascade effect throughout the organization so you have to really be a lot more surgical and focused and detailed I'd say with these sorts of uh, change management initiatives um, partly for that reason and also partly because of what I said before you, have just, you just have to assume that there's you know certain people within the organizations that are very low on the maturity and sophistication and IT comfort scale and you have to cater to them, you know, sort of that lowest uh, level. And I don't mean that in a just—I dis- don't mean that in a disparaging way or, or condescending way. It's just more that some people are, are less comfortable than others. So, but you have to assume that all are going to be at that level, so that your change management can be effective. If you if you sort of are operating up here, assuming that everyone's that sophisticated IT user, you're going to lose most of the organization.
3: Right, right, definitely. So, if you are a company, or an organization that is considering going through, um, uh, a migration from um, Microsoft 365 up to a cloud-based storage system. What are some of the main considerations that you should um, take take into account when building out your strategy?
2: Well, you know, the first is you know the change strategy that, that we've talked about here. Um, the other is the data migration strategy, which which uh, Chad talked a b- quite a bit about in, in the discussion with him. So how are you going to move all this data? How much data is there to move? What are we going to move? And it may, it may be that you're not going to move everything. You may have some limits on what you're going to move or some parameters, so you're defining those parameters and then figuring out how we're going to migrate it all. Um, there's also integration. You know, if you're, if you're upgrading Office 365, you know, it's not just your email. It's also, you know, are we going to start leveraging Share, uh, SharePoint? Are there other uh, tools, Microsoft tools that we want to integrate with? What's that going to look like? And, you know, that all ties back to the change management plan. Um, so I'd say those are the, the major ones, you know, sort of the, the data uh, migration, the um, the change management. Uh, there's also, you know, the other the other part of it is just understanding what the real costs are. You know, how are you going to decommission other, you know, old systems and infrastructure and what's the new cost structure going to look like? And just make sure you have a really good understanding of what the real costs are going to be, because like I said before, there's a lot of hidden costs there. So uh, those are a few of the things. And then I'd say the final thing is if you want to get sort of to that um, uh, more utopia state of transformation uh, or the higher value part of transformation, that's going to be, you know, how could we better use these tools to make our business better? So rather than just migrating to Office 365, how can we use those tools better and improve our workflows and collaboration and knowledge sharing and all that stuff? Um, which right at the end of the day, that's really why you're we're using it. We're not just using email just for the fun of it. We're using it because we're trying to collaborate. We're trying to share information and trying to integrate it to other tools as well.
3: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for all that insight. And thank you to Chad, all those efficiency tactics. I had no idea that so many things go into, you know, um, overviews of Microsoft 365 Office. Um, So it's just, um, it was a really interesting talk uh, from just using it as a user on the front lines to understanding kind of what, goes into it. So I appreciate you guys sharing your insights there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for all the, all the great questions and follow-up here and, uh, look forward to, uh, our next conversation next week. But uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you for being on the show as always, Kyler. Uh, thanks to Chad for joining the show. He was a great guest and a good guy to have on the show. Um, be sure to check out his, his company LAE software, LAE software, I should say. And, uh, Thanks to the audience for listening today. And again, if you, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with colleagues, drop us a review, let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. So thanks, everyone, for uh, being here today. We look forward to seeing you next Wednesday and every other Wednesday that we put out new episodes. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and we'll see you all soon. Take care. <laughs>